Bibles now, if you would please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. If you please find the Gospel of John in chapter 16. For several weeks, we've been studying a part of the Gospel of John where Jesus is speaking very privately and intimately to his disciples. And the setting for this time that Jesus speaks these words is very important. These are the last hours before Jesus goes to the cross. And what Jesus is doing here in these chapters is giving his disciples the last bits of information that he wants them to have before he leaves them. In chapter 13, Jesus spoke about love. In chapter 14, he told them about heaven. Chapter 15, Jesus said that he was the vine and his disciples are the branches. In chapter 16, the beginning of the chapter, he gave them the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in these discourses, it's almost like Jesus is helping these disciples cram before a final. He wants them to get in these last bits of information, so he keeps re-emphasizing things that he's already said. Now, we notice here in chapter 16 that Jesus doesn't really introduce any new information to them. He's just going back over things that he already said. And that really shows us the significance of what Jesus is doing here, because these things are very important. And if Jesus thought that they were important, then I certainly think that they're important. These teachings of Jesus will culminate in chapter 17, where Jesus goes to his heavenly Father in prayer, and he prays what we're going to call in the next three sermons, the real Lord's Prayer. Next week, we'll begin a three-part sermon on the real Lord's Prayer. But with all the sadness and the disillusionment that was inevitable because Jesus was leaving the disciples, Jesus comes down to the end of the section that we'll read today, and he says to the disciples, Be of good cheer. Cheer up, disciples. Cheer up, Christians. He says, Because I have overcome the world. I want us to read about that today. If you'd please stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. We're going to begin today in John 16, verse number 16. And Jesus says here, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of the disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again a little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, What is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. And he said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while? And ye shall not see me. And again a little while, and ye shall see me. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament. But the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful. But your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish, for the joy that a man is born into the world. Many of you ladies, of course, have experienced that the pain of childbirth, and yet when that child comes and you're able to look into the face of that little bitty baby, you forget about the pain. Verse 22 says, And ye ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. And there's Jesus re-emphasizing what he preached or taught them about prayer in the previous chapters. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the hour 
the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world. Again I leave the world, and go to the Father." His disciples said unto him, Lo, now thou speakest plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Now there the disciples say, Well, we've got it figured out now. Well, I think we understand what you're saying, Jesus. Now we believe. But Jesus has something different to say. He answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Now, verse number 33 is our text verse today. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word today, and how we do need to be joyful Christians, cheerful Christians. Lord, we just ask you that you might fill our hearts today with joy. And may we understand as the message preached today why there are troubles in the world, and yet through those troubles, we can have peace in our hearts. Bless in this message. Bless our people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When I began chapter 14 a few weeks ago, I spoke to you on the subject, Hope for Troubled Hearts. And we learned in that sermon as Jesus was teaching about heaven that it is truly possible for us to have hope when we know that there's trouble in this world. Well, Jesus comes back to that theme once again in this 16th chapter. And though he tells the disciples that things will appear to become worse and worse, there will be tribulation in the world, yet he says, don't be discouraged about it. Don't be despondent about this because I have overcome the world. Troubles come. Difficulties arrive, arise, we all have problems, but Jesus says, cheer up, and in fact, he says, cheer up, because it will get worse. I want to talk to you today about how to deal with tribulations and how to deal with conflicts and crises. Troubles come, and many times those troubles come upon us unexpectedly. I heard what was told as a true story the other day about some duck hunters who came up with a really an, an inventive way and an illegal way of hunting ducks. They lived in the northern part of the country where the lakes would freeze over. And so these fellows learned how to hunt ducks with dynamite. They'd drive out way out on the ice, and they'd take a stick of dynamite, they'd throw it way out on the ice, and that dynamite would blow a hole in the ice, and that would give a place for the ducks to land on the water. Well, this one particular day, they came out to the lake to go, to go uh, duck hunting, and all they had with them was a stick of dynamite with a very short fuse. So they drove out on the ice in their brand-new Jeep Cherokee that this fellow just bought. They drove out on the ice, and on this particular day, they brought their dogs with them. Well, what happens when you throw something? A dog goes after it, doesn't he? Well, they had that stick of dynamite with the short fuse, And they threw that dynamite way out on the ice. And guess what? The dogs took out after it. And one of those dogs retrieved that stick of dynamite with that short fuse. And he figured what he needed to do is just bring it right back to its owner. 
And so that's what he did. So this dog comes running towards the hunters, and they had to think fast. What are we going to do? So they decided, well, the best thing to do is just shoot the dog. So this hunter raised his gun, and he fired at the dog, but he missed. And it wouldn't have done any good anyway because his gun was loaded with birdshot, so it wouldn't have killed the dog. But what it did do, it scared that dog half to death. And so the dog went to run and look for some place to hide. And you know where he went? Right up underneath that brand-new cheap Cherokee. And in just a minute, there was an explosion, and that Cherokee ended up at the bottom of the lake. What about the dog? Well, all dogs go to heaven. We know that. But... That's usually how trouble comes, does it? I mean, it comes suddenly upon us. It, it comes unexpectedly. Troubles come when things seem to be going well. And you may not have the same trouble as those duck hunters had, but there may be some problem that you're dealing with today, some crisis that you're going through. It might be affecting you, and you're just wondering, where does all of this trouble come from? Why is there so much trouble in the world? And I think it's interesting here that Jesus told these disciples right up front. He said, in the world, ye shall have tribulation. Now, that's not what many ministries are telling us today. Many ministries don't tell people about this. They'll just tell you that if you have enough faith, that you'll always be healthy, wealthy, and you'll be prosperous, and you'll be happy. And then when it doesn't work that way, they've got their out because they just say, well, you didn't have enough faith. And so that's why you have problems. But you know what that does to a person who, who is in the middle of a problem and, and, and now they figure out, well, I just don't have enough faith right now? It heaps more guilt upon them. And they sorrow because they don't have enough faith. You know, there's a very technical Greek term that applies to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's the word hogwash. <laughs> Jesus said, you will have trouble. I mean, this is a fact of life. And the question is, once you have trouble, what are you going to do about it? One of the things that you can do, you can turn off the radio and you can stop listening to sweet-talking Joel Osteen and find out what the real gospel is all about. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel contains no gospel at all. Well, let's talk about troubles and crises today. What do you do? Well, first of all, we're going to talk about the antecedents to trouble. Now, everybody knows what an antecedent is? Some of you may not. Well, that's something that precedes something else, and it's the cause of something else. You say, well, why did you start off the sermon today with a word like that? Why antecedent? Well, it starts with an A, and all the rest of the points start with an A, too. So we're going to use antecedent. <laughs> Antecedents are the cause of trouble. The antecedents, what are they? Well, you may ask, well, what is it that's happening to me? You know, that's a question that preachers and philosophers have been ask, uh, trying to answer for years. And sometimes the, the answers to that can get very long and complicated. Why do we have troubles? You know, I like the way that Forrest Gump put it. He put it very simply. You may remember this scene where Forrest is in Vietnam and, and he's holding his friend Bubba who's just been shot. And Bubba's bleeding and dying. And Bubba looks up at Forrest and he says, why did this happen to me? And Forrest says, you got shot. It's as simple as that. You're bleeding because you got shot. Well, we try to make things so complicated. Bad things happen. Why do they happen? Well, I want to give you four reasons today. This is not an exhaustive list, but there are at least four reasons why troubles come. The first one is the fallout from the fall. Now, ultimately, every bad thing that happens in the world is the result of sin. Before the fall of Adam, there wasn't any suffering. 
There, were, there was no pain. Nobody had any problems. But Adam sinned, and there was this huge fallout that came from the fall. Now, it's just like a, a nuclear explosion was set off. In places of the world today, they've done some testing for nuclear devices. And those places where those bombs have exploded have become contaminated. They're uninhabited. And this is what happened when Adam sinned. The whole world became contaminated by that sin. And so the fallout of the fall began to express itself in the pain and suffering of men. So wherever there's sin, there will always be pain and suffering. Now, when a person gets cancer... When, when, you, when you contract cancer, that doesn't mean that God's picking on you. And some people do believe that. They blame God. But you ought not to blame God. Blame sin for this. Tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes. All of that is ultimately the fallout from the, from the fall. Now, sin is the real reason for suffering. Other people's sins can hurt you. And maybe you've experienced that. You know, a, a drunk can hit your car. A, 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 a alcoholic father can, can beat his wife and his children. Read the papers. Lots of people are affected by other people's sins. But also, it, your sin affects you. I mean, even if you're a, a saved, born-again believer and you've received the forgiveness of your sins from Jesus Christ, yet still there are consequences from your sins. The general fallout from the fall... That's why there's pain and suffering and problems in the world today. But then there's also another reason for trouble, and that is the devices of the devil. Sometimes it's the devil. Now, if you haven't learned yet, there is a devil. There's a devil, and he hates you. He likes nothing better than to afflict you. And so sometimes the problems that you have in your life could be the direct result of demonic activity. So the devil's doing these things. Now, people deny it, and they say, well, that's foolish for you to believe in the devil. I mean, there's no such thing as a devil. Oh, he's content for you to think that way. And all the while that you're thinking like that, he goes right on afflicting you. But I suppose if there's any good news that we can find in, in that partic- this particular part, it's that the devil is limited in his power. God limits the authority of the devil in your life. So the devil can't do everything that he really wants to do to you. So God limits that authority. In the Old Testament, you remember the story of Job. God allowed Satan to afflict Job. But God said, Satan, you can only go so far. I'm not going to allow you to go any further than this. And so he limited the devil. Now that brings me to the, to the next cause for trouble, and that's tools for training. Sometimes God can use trouble to train you, to bring you to himself. And so he may bring trouble into your life in order to open your eyes that you might see something that God wants you to do. So you may have this trouble. God helps you to overcome that trouble. And as he does, he's strengthening you and helping you to grow so that you can overcome the next trouble that comes into your life. God used trouble and affliction to bring the apostle Paul to him. Remember the story of how Paul was on the road to Damascus? He was going there to persecute Christians and to throw them in prison. And while he was traveling there, God struck Paul down with a brilliant light. And God blinded him. God blinded Paul. And God used that to bring Paul to himself. Now, God can sometimes do that. He's trying to get your attention over something that he wants you to do. And as one wise old preacher say, if God's trying to get your attention, pay attention. Because there can be trouble that can come out of it. 
And so maybe there's somebody here today that you're experiencing some kind of trouble and what God is doing, he's training you to do something. He's trying to get your attention for something significant that he wants you to do. And the problem is you're not paying attention. I've heard all kinds of pastor stories and missionary stories about how they ran from God, how that God wanted to do something with their life, but they refused to surrender to his will. Finally, they did. Finally, they had to come to that point where they did surrender. You see, ultimately, you will succumb to the will of God one way or the other. The best thing to do is surrender now without all of the pain and suffering. So that can be a cause of trouble. God's got tools for training. But this next reason, this fourth reason for trouble, I'm afraid, is, is really more often than not the real reason why Christians have trouble. And the fourth reason is the chastisement of children. God disciplines disobedient children. Now, if you're one of God's children, then you can expect that God's going to treat you like one of his own. What does a good parent do? Sometimes a parent has to inflict pain on a child. I know that's not popular to say or, or politically correct in Roner Park, California, but that certainly is a biblical thing. God doesn't abuse his children, but he does inflict enough pain to get his point across. Now, you have your Bibles open. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12 for just a moment. And here we have the Bible's chapter about how God deals with disobedient children. And in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, I want to begin reading in verse number 5, if you could find that. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 5. It says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So if you're God's child and you're habitually disobedient to him, the trouble that you experience or that pain that you experience in your life could very well be the fact that God is chastening you and, and God's bringing you under his discipline. Now, one of the things that God does when he begins to discipline is he'll talk to you about it first. Here's what Jesus said in Revelation 3, verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So he starts by rebuking. He tells you what the problem is. And if you don't listen to what he says, he stops talking, and that's where the chastisement begins. Do you ever do that with your children? Most of us do. You start out by talking to them. You tell them what they've done wrong, and you ask them to correct that or not to do it again. And if they do, then you have to move on to something else. Now you go to the stiffer punishment, the harder punishment. Now the problem is that many Christian people hear God speaking to them, and instead of repenting from the sin and giving that up, they go on the way that they're going, and so God has to bring that pain and suffering into their life. God will use extreme measures when you don't yield to his will in your life. And so if you persist, if you go on, God's going to take you out behind the woodshed and he's going to wear you out. He's going to whip you. He'll spank you for it. Now, I know somebody will invariably come up with an example of some person that they know who's a Christian and this person said that they were a Christian and yet they've been living for years outside of the will of God. I mean, they go on day after day, and they act as if 
nothing ever bad has ever happened to them before. They go on and sin and sin. They go on and choose to do whatever they want to do. And it seems like they never get called in question for that. God doesn't do anything in their life. What about that person? Well, if God doesn't discipline, that's a good indication the person wasn't saved in the first place. Make no mistake about this. God disciplines his children. Now, back there again in Hebrews, if you still have it open, verse number 7 says, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? You know something that I don't do? I don't discipline other people's children. I don't spank your kids, but I spank mine. And if you're one of God's children, I should say if you're not one of God's children, he's not going to spank you. He's not going to try to straighten you up and do something with you. You know, there are too many people that are in church today and they fall back on the once saved, always saved doctrine that we Baptists believe in. Once saved, always saved. And they put the emphasis on the wrong part of that. They put their emphasis on the always saved when they really should be looking at the first part, once saved. Because there are many people that don't have any chastisement and the reason they don't because they're really not the children of God. But if you are God's child, then you need to watch out because when you're disobedient, chastisement will come. Hebrews twelve eleven says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. So why does God whip his children? I mean, does he just get some kind of kick out of it, some kind of a joy of hurting his own kids? Not at all. He does it because it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. That's what brings you in closer to him. Did you ever try to do this when you were little? Your dad was going to spank you and you jerked to get away. And you tried to get out of his, get away from where he, where he just can't land a blow on you. And you know what happens when you're way out here? Dad can get good leverage on that first swing, can he? I mean, he's got all the force behind it when you're out there. What happens when you get in closer? When you draw in close to him, dad can't whip you so hard. And that's what you do. This is what God is doing as he's working with us. Don't pull away from God. Don't try to get away from him while he's trying to chastise you. Draw in closer to God so that you can be in the place where God wants to bless you. Now, as I say, this this is not an exhaustive list that I've given you this morning. But more important than the list that we have here is what are you going to do about this? When you have trouble come into your life, what are you going to do about this chastisement or whatever it is that God's bringing? Well, the first thing that you can do, I mean, there are different attitudes that people have, and this is what we want to talk about, attitudes and troubles. What do you do when God is bringing chastisement or when there's problems? Now, Jesus says, when you have a problem, be of good cheer. In your troubles, you can take heart. And he says that because there are different reactions that you can have. Now, the first reaction that you might choose to have is that you may be contrary when there's, when there's a problem that comes. You know, every pastor has experienced this. Sometime somebody will come into the pastor's office or you'll meet somebody out on visitation and they'll say, Pastor, why did God take my child? 
Pastor, why do I have a problem in my marriage? Why did my husband leave me? Why did my wife leave me? Why did my child get sick? I mean, why do I have these problems? And people turn and they shake their fist in the, in the face of God and they say, God, you did this to me. It's your fault. And they blame God for that. Well, first of all, let me tell you that when you do that, God still loves you. If you have that kind of reaction, God still loves his children, even when they act like that. And, and you are never, by your accusations against God, you're never going to impugn God's character. And so you haven't overly concerned God when you accuse him of things. But I'll tell you something that's far better than that. Have you tried being mad at the devil? I mean, have you tried being mad at sin? You see, God didn't cause sin. Suffering and troubles, they're not God's fault. It's all the result of this one big thing. It's S-I-N. All have sin. John wrote this in 1 John 1 verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so when you can say, when you can say unreservedly and honestly, I have never sinned, then you can be mad at God. You could be mad at God then because now God's justice has been administered unfairly. But you know you'll never be able to make that claim. As long as you live in this life, you will never be able to say, I have never sinned. And so when you hear that word cancer or when you hear chemotherapy or as I did not long ago, colonoscopy, then you can say, it's my fault. It's because of sin, really. It's not God's fault. So some people get angry about it, and and they get contrary, and they blame God for these things. Now, a second reaction that you could have, you can become callous. You might have the attitude, well, que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. I can't do anything about it anyway. And so troubles come, and you just sit back, and you watch it. You've seen troubles before, so you become hardened by it. You become callous by it. Now, at this point, there are some people who will pull out a liquor bottle, And they'll begin to drink. And they think that they can drown their sorrows and forget about their problems in that liquor bottle. Some people will medicate themselves into a stupor and they think that they can escape the problem for a while. But what happens when you come out of that stupor? What happens when you wake up from the medication? The problem's still there, only now you have a worse problem. And you know what happens to many people like that? They go into depression. Some of them will go so far as they'll even commit suicide. And they'll say, well, I'll just end it all, and that will be the end of problems. And people act as if death will be the end of it. Death is not the end of problems. I mean, if you end it all because you have a problem and you won't deal with it, you just need to be aware that death plunges you into eternal problems. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you don't end your problems by dying. You go into a devil's hell of fire and brimstone. Now, as far as I know... Hopefully, there's nobody in the congregation today that would ever contemplate committing suicide. But there may be some of you that you do have troubles, you have problems, and you'll leave here today, and someday you will die. But that won't be the end of your problems. If you've never trusted Christ, you won't see an end to problems. So don't become hardened and don't become calloused because there's yet another attitude that you can take, and this is the one that Jesus promotes, and that is you may be content. This is Jesus' advice. Cheer up, take heart, because I have overcome the world. Now, is that actually possible? Can you cheer up? When Jesus says, cheer up, Christian, it's only going to get worse. Can you cheer up? Well, I want to call your attention to something that Paul says in the book of Philippians. 
In Philippians, he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Do you know the circumstances of the Philippian letter? When Paul wrote that, he was in prison. And he was waiting to be beheaded for the cause of Christ. Prison was not a picnic in the time of Paul. People didn't sit around and watch television in prison. He didn't scratch you behind all day. I mean, it was a lot of problems. It was a miserable experience. And Paul only had one thing to look forward to. At the end of that prison experience, they're going to cut my head off. And yet Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. So you see, it's not me It's telling you to rejoice in problems. Jesus says this. Paul said that. God's word says it. Now, the only way to deal with the problem is to meet it head on and ask God to help you with that problem, and he'll help you handle it. That's what Jesus is saying. I have overcome the world. Peter said, and who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? You see, Paul not only had that prison experience, not only did he have the weight of all the churches that were upon him, all the problems that the churches had, and he was dealing with that, not only did he have that, But the Bible tells us that there was a physical affliction in Paul. There was a personal ailment that he had. Something was wrong with his health. And this problem was so bad that Paul woke up in the morning with it. He thought about it all day long. He went through the day with it. He went to bed with it. And the next day it was still there. He had a physical problem. He prayed that God would take that problem away from him. Now the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what the physical ailment is. And maybe it doesn't tell us that because God wants us to be able to identify with it. We all have some kind of problem. But Paul prayed to God. He said, God, take this thing away from me. But God didn't. Paul prayed a second time. God, please, take it away from me. And God didn't. Paul prayed a third time. I would really need to get rid of this problem. And God said, no, I'm not going to take it. But I tell you what I will do. I'll give you the grace to go through that problem. And this is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Someone has said that when you go through life, you can choose to live in one of two tents. Either you can live in discontent, or you can choose to live in content. Whenever I think about this, I think of a man that many of our men are familiar with. Those of you men who went with us to the Master's Men Conference, you heard a man by the name of John Bishop speak. John Bishop was a Baptist pastor who was afflicted with aseptic meningitis. That caused him to lose his memory. It caused him so he couldn't walk any longer. He didn't know his family. He didn't know his church any longer. He lost the ability to walk and talk. And there was a man who could have given up and he could have insisted that that God had treated him unfairly. He could have done that. He could have blamed God. But John Bishop learned to walk again. He learned to preach again. He had to fall in love with his wife all over again. He had to learn the word of God again. Today he heads a ministry that's entitled God is So Good Ministries. He still doesn't have complete mobility and function. Sometimes the words that he speaks don't come out right, but there's no mistaking this. He truly believes that God works out things for our good. You see, you can choose the attitude that you have. You can choose to be content. Anger, resentment, contrariness, those are choices, but so is contentment. All of them are choices. 
And so you can have a different attitude when troubles come. Now, finally today, I want us to consider your asset in trouble. From the perspective of the world, I mean, it's impossible to do what Jesus told these disciples. Jesus said, trouble is coming. Your life in this world will be filled with tribulations, but I want you to cheer up about it. You know, godless psychiatry would look at that statement of Jesus, and they say, that is totally dysfunctional. I mean, that is dysfunctional. You, it is not reasonable. It's not expected that when you have problems that you can look at those problems in a way than such that you can even rejoice in them. That is just not normal. And I would agree. I do agree. Without Jesus Christ in the picture, I most certainly agree. It's totally unreasonable to tell people they can face trouble with a smile on their face. It's just not normal. And you know, the world's been trying to figure that out. If you look back into the Dark Ages when there were millions of Christians who were martyred and they refused to give up their faith in Christ and they died for the cause of Christ, their persecutors looked at that and said, How? How can they do that? How can they not renounce Jesus? It seems impossible. It puzzles people. Well, the only reason that you can have peace is for the reason that Jesus gives in verse number 33. Jesus said, these words have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In me ye might have peace. And that's the whole key to it. The key is Christ, being in Christ. Whenever I think about those kinds of statements and I think about being in Christ, it always reminds me of Noah. Noah going into the ark. And you know, the Bible teaches us that the ark is a type of Jesus Christ. And Noah went into that ark. You see, God could have sent the flood and he said, Noah, he could have said, Noah, here's the way that I'm going to save you. I want you to fight the highest mountain. I want you to climb that mountain, take all of your family up there. And then when the water gets up right close to the top, I'm going to stop it. And Noah would have been above the flood. He would have been above the problems and out of the storm. But God didn't do that. Noah built the ark. And God said, Noah, take your family and get inside the ark. And then God shut the door. And Noah was in peace and safety in that ark, although there was a storm outside. So right on the other side of that wall of the ark was the worst storm that the world had ever seen. And yet Noah was safe inside of the ark. Now, would you notice the last statement on your lesson sheet today? Peace is not the absence of trouble. Peace is security in times of trouble. Have you thought about your source of security? Is your security found in your job? Is it your IQ? Is that where it is? Your education? Do you find your security in your bank account? All of those things will pass away. The only true source of security is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our peace in the storm of troubles. You see what we try to do? We want God to change our situations. We want deliverance from problems. God, give me a new job. God, give me a different family, a new marriage. Give me something else. And we're interested in changing the situations and not conforming to the image of Christ. God may not change your circumstances. He may choose not to do that. But he does want to change you. And the question of this is, When are you going to do what God says? When are you going to yield to the change that God wants to make? And the sooner that you move, the sooner you'll get through that problem and then the next one that comes. I want to close today with an illustration. 
Most of you probably already know the story of Horatio Spafford. But in 1874, Mrs. Horatio Spafford was sailing with her four children across the Atlantic. They were on the French steamer, the Ville du Havre. And that French steamer ran into a sailing vessel. And the steamer was very badly damaged and it began to sink. In a short time, it did sink, and nearly everybody on board that ship lost their lives. Well, as the ship was sinking, Mrs. Spafford knelt with four of her children, and she began to pray. She prayed that they might be saved. But she also prayed that if it was God's will that they wouldn't be saved, that they would be accepting of God's will. Well, it so happened that all four children of hers died. Mrs. Spafford was picked up some time later by a sailor who was rowing over that same spot where those children had drowned, and they picked up Mrs. Spafford. About 10 days later, they arrived at a place where she could send a telegram to her husband. The news was already out across the world, of course, that the ship had sunk and there were many people who had died, but she finally got to a place where she could send a telegram to him. Mr. Spafford, Horatio Spafford, was a lawyer in Chicago, and she got this telegram off to him, And the telegram simply said, saved alone. You can imagine how that must have made him feel. I've never lost a child. I I can't even imagine what that would be like. But Horatio Spafford, this lawyer in Chicago, received those words. And then he went to his only refuge. He went to the only asset that he had. And so he sat down and he penned these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance be known that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. One author wrote, This is the meaning of the Christian's peace. It's not the absence of conflict or any other trial or disappointment. Rather, it's the contentment and trust in God in spite of such circumstances. Jesus said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Those words that he spoke were just hours before the cross. In just a few hours, it looked like there would be bitter disappointment. There would be defeat. But we remember what the psalmist said, weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. You see, it is possible to be of good cheer when the troubles come. The difference is, have you counted your assets? Are you able to look at the Lord Jesus Christ? And is your hope and your confidence in him in times of trouble? And if you can look to Jesus and have your confidence in him, then you can also say, it is well with my soul. I hope you found that peace and contentment today. I hope you know Jesus Christ as your personal savior because in him... And him alone is the peace that you can find in the time of troubles. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the words of Jesus in this passage. We can cheer up. We can look to our troubles and know that we have an asset. We have our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who helps us in all times of trouble. I ask you, Lord, to speak to your people today, somebody who may be going through some kind of conflict, some kind of crisis, Help them to understand where that comes from and where to look in times of trouble. And then, Lord, also may we be people who are obedient to you. May we give our lives to you so that we don't endure chastisement, but we endure the blessing in all phases of our life. Bless your people this morning. 
Speak to us in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.